Hello, readers. Gary Stahl is a best-selling author and screenwriter. His newest book is another great one. It's called 999, One Man's Tale of Depression, Psychic Torment, and a Bus Tour of the Holocaust. Jerry, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Trey? I'm doing great. So why did you decide to go on a bus tour of concentration camps through Poland and Germany a couple of years ago? Seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> I uh, was in a state of mind where I figured if you're depressed already, why not go to the place where absolute depression and despair are completely justified? And uh, Vice Magazine was kind enough to hook me up with a trip over there. And uh, I thought just to make it extra hot for myself, I would travel by bus on a bus tour with a uh, bunch of complete strangers. Uh, many of them had never seen a Jew. And I thought, well, that will make things so uncomfortable. It's bound to be a fascinating book. And that turned out to be the case. And I'm glad you mentioned the depression element of things, because I was surprised to learn a little bit uh, early on in reading this book that uh, the real subject of your bestseller, Permanent Midnight, was something that you never even talked about, your depression. What led you to realizing that depression was such a major force within you? And did that change you at all once you made that discovery? I think like, uh, well, Permanent Midnight, for people who don't know, is a book about somebody in the grips of uh, drug addiction. And when you're in it, you're just trying to get through. I hope you can't relate to any of this, by the way. Uh, and this is not part of your personal history. If it is, it is. If it isn't, it isn't. I won't ask. But uh, while you're in it, you're just trying to get through it. And you don't realize why you are doing what you are doing uh, until sometimes years after you stop doing it. So uh, it occurred to me as uh, life rolled on by and a few more and more years passed that uh, I was really just trying to kill a lot of feelings and give life a kind of escape valve that it didn't otherwise have. And uh, because I come from a family of uh, depressos and suicides and electroshock victims, uh, not to brag, um, uh, it, it's... There's a theory among um, the Jewish race that it is this thing called epigenetic. Depression is epigenetic, meaning that there has been so much trauma amongst uh, members of that particular uh, world, race, culture, whatever you want to call it, that you're almost born into depression or despair. And uh, whether or not that's the case, it was certainly a large part of my story. That would uh, play against, I guess, the classic line from Curb Your Enthusiasm where Larry bumps into somebody and the guy turns around and calls him a self-loathing Jew. And he's like, I'm self-loathing, but it has nothing to do with me being Jewish. Epigenetic One of the greatest lines ever. Yeah. <laughs> a terrific line. Absolutely true. Yeah. So speaking of Hollywood, there was an added challenge that you were dealing with while embarking on this journey, and that had to do with placating Hollywood. What was being asked of you in this regard? Uh, it was an odd, uh, perfect storm of circumstances. I had written a, a book called uh, OG Dad, which I'm not mentioning to Pimp on any level, just that was the name of the book. And uh, it was about a guy, to give you the short version, who marries a woman much younger than him, and uh, they have a child, and it's the wacky adventures of an OG, an old guy dad, and a younger woman, and it's beautiful with lauder, which is all great until it all kind of exploded and uh, resulted in divorce. And by then, the child was living in Austin. Uh, mom and dad are divorced, and uh, yet I still had to write this happy version for ABC Network, which I was insane enough to sell to. Uh, it seems they hadn't read the book. They had only heard me on another podcast, Naren, because why read the book, you know? And uh, long story short, I'm dealing with these poor people who have bought something they absolutely don't want and are trying to get me to be more and more conventional and square and happy and, you know, sitcom-y, while in real life things are just getting more and more and more despairing. So that's happening while I'm at the camps, so that I, for example, would be staggering out of the ovens at Auschwitz and make the mistake of picking up my cell phone. It's like an executive saying, um, yeah, can you make Jerry less creepy? 
you know, and <laughs> which would be bad enough if you were sitting in your own living room in any in any city. But to be, you know, staggering out of Buchenwald or Dachau, it was uh, it was an added level of fun. So before we get to the details of the trip, I do also need to ask you about a new piece of luggage that you bought for the trip. What the heck is so special about a blue smart suitcase and was it worth it? Was it worth it, actually? Thank you for asking. Uh, at the time, I decided, what a cool thing. I, I saw this suitcase called Blue Smart where you could, uh, had a USB port. So you could, hey, you could plug your phone into it. And uh, why that would be necessary as opposed to just having a jack and a uh, regular plug, uh, I don't know, but it seemed like a great idea at the time. So I spent a lot of money I didn't have getting this real state-of-the-art suitcase, which proceeded to instantly break. Things snapped off. The USB port didn't work, but even creepier, all night long, it just kept beeping uh, as if it were this lonely little you know, animal on the other side of my hotel room that just needed company. So I just would throw blankets over it, you know, and try to shut the thing up. And uh, I would not invest in Blue Smart. I'm probably going to be sued by the company, but that, that was my experience. Oh, man, that is a huge pet peeve of mine is technology that is constantly chirping or whining at me, and I can't figure out how to get it to stop. And oftentimes it is solving a problem that was not a problem to begin with. Technology invented the solution before they invented the problem. But if you're a sucker like me, I fell for it and then was trying to solve the problem created by the technology. So that was just an extra level of fun, complete uh, insomnia. It really is impressive with some of the ways they try and infuse digital technology and things that absolutely do not need it. Like I have a seven-year-old daughter right now and she is a voracious mm -hmm. reader, which I love, but will go to like a half price books or a, a Barnes and Noble sure. or something like that. Mm -hmm. And she'll see a digital bookmark. And she's like, dad, can I get this digital bookmark? I'm like, why do you need a digital bookmark? You can dog ear your book. We can use a receipt, a piece of paper. I'll buy you an actual cardboard bookmark. She's like, well, I need to know how long I'm reading each time I'm reading that to where it then adds up to a certain point. So even reading now is becoming some digital game. I know. Yeah, they have those at book people, too. My daughter wanted one. So uh, I'm completely familiar with that grotesque technology. And uh, how do you deal with it? Do you say no, honey, you don't need that? Or do you just give in like I generally do? <laughs> it really depends on the item with that one, though, because... Although I have read books digitally before, I do have an e-reader because sometimes the books that I receive uh, when I'm speaking with an author, the only way that I can get it is digitally. So I do have it for that regard, but I tell her, look, this, this isn't going to work. We're, we're not a digital book family per se. You still, mm -hmm. read the, uh, you still read the hard copies of things. So you're just going to have to go with the cardboard bookmark. And if you don't like that, at some point you'll make enough money for yourself to where you'll, you'll buy it on your own, you know? It's quite an inspiration for her to be a success in life, to buy her own digital books later on down the road. You know? Hopefully that doesn't backfire on me, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> so the, uh, the concentration, uh, concentration camp element of this story really begins in Krakow with uh, your tour bus, the group that you're with, visiting the uh, former Schindler factory and the Oscar Schindler Museum as well. Why was it important to call out Steven Spielberg for his film Schindler's List during this chapter? Because I have to admit, I had not heard this before, and I'm really glad that I'm armed with this information now. I'm not sure I would say calling it out. I mean, obviously, yeah, the guy's a brilliant filmmaker, but I'm always a guy who roots for the underdog. And there was a Czech, a, a Czech filmmaker. Don't ask me to remember his name after a certain age. Memories out the window, uh, who had a scene similar to one that was in Schindler's List, which apparently wasn't even in a book, a shower scene. Let's leave it at that. And uh, this poor Czech director wanted to sue because, you know, it wasn't in the screenplay, it wasn't in the book, but it was in the movie. And he realized he needed a hundred grand for a lawyer to get some slick Hollywood lawyer to uh, help him out. He didn't have the money. So he just ate it. And I always thought, well, in my own small way, if I can give this guy a shout out and uh, right his wrong just a little bit, then I'm going to. And, and a filmmaker I've worked with over the years, uh, a guy named Steven Sadian, who done a, did a couple weirdo movies back in the day. Uh, he told me about this guy because he tours the avant-garde film circuits and knows all this stuff. And I thought, wow, you know, 
I actually know the guy who wrote Schindler's List, Stephen Zalian, a terrific writer, mm. great guy, offered to give me a car about 500 years ago when I wrote this starting out. Um, but in this particular case, it's, it's not about the script. It's about a scene that got added in that was taken from some other portion meal from Eastern Europe. And my heart went out to the guy. Do you remember the car? Uh, it was some car that I didn't take because I think I was too big of a putz to know how to drive a standard. You know, I was an automatic guy. I'm very, very, very bad with any, any machines. It's amazing. I can drive a car that you don't pedal like the Flintstones at this point, <laughs> but, uh, I, that's as much as I remember. I didn't take it. So it was interesting to read that you felt a sort of heavy peace throughout this trip, including at a cemetery at a synagogue that had been spared by the Nazis in Krakow. What do you think this heavy presence was about, Jerry? Um, there's something very interesting about the cemeteries outside of Krakow and all over Poland, because a lot of the gravestones had been dug up, smashed, and used to pave roads all around the city. And, the, and when the war was over, the people from those synagogues went literally and dug them up and tried to put them back in the cemetery, which is phenomenal in itself. And second, there's a tradition uh, in that religion that because so much time was spent wandering the desert when you couldn't really bury people, that wherever somebody, their body was left um, in whatever state as best you could, even if you couldn't bury it, you'd leave rocks there. And they always put rocks on top of the gravestones. And for some reason I thought, if all else fails in my life back in America, I can get some gig coming back to a little town in Poland, just kind of keeping things neat in the uh, reconfigured Polish cemeteries <laughs> of uh, Krakow and Warsaw. Oh man, uh, or you could, uh, you could maybe continue uh, exploring the Nazi porn fetish hole that you uh, rabbit hole rather that you found yourself going down at one point. Why were you doing this level of research and how did you end up as an active participant in one person's fantasy? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a double question. I, I strangely enough met this woman, Diane Ford, who played Ilsa, Wolf of the SS, in a, the first Nazi exploitation movie uh, where she had been fetishized as some uh, SS uh, torture queen and met the actress just by chance while casting another obscure little movie. And she was the nicest lady in the world. And she was a little older by then, but she didn't get why she had become, it was so sweet. She didn't get why she, she had become this cult um, kind of goddess to all these people in, in this odd, uh, strange S&M fetish community. And um, it was like talking to your grandmother. It's like, how am I going to explain? I just said, well, you know, you're very popular and you're a great actress. You know, and we kind of left it at that. And, uh, and I thought, well, she's so sensitive. She probably doesn't understand why she's so popular. And then I come to find out that in her latter, latter years, she's running like Vegas, Ilsa, she-wolf of the SS Nazi porn weddings, you know, <laughs> in Vegas. I'm like, boy, is my face red. I'm thought, I thought she was some nice girl. She was, she's an incredibly sweet lady, but uh, eh, you know, people are complicated. But, but you were also able to sympathize with her based on uh, people's misunderstanding of uh, your role with the television show ALF back in the 1980s too, correct? <laughs> Yes, uh, you're, you're a very astute reader. Yeah, I had a kind of a funny thing. I, uh, for whatever ungodly reason, because they made a movie out of my first book, Permanent Midnight, part of which involved me writing for a kind of a puppet show, uh, ALF. And in the movie, for whatever reason, people came away thinking somehow I had created ALF, which would that that were true, would be speaking on my own private island right about now, somewhere in the, Car you know, in the Caribbean, which... <laughs> Not the case, trust me, uh, just a regular house. And uh, so the rest of my life, wherever I go, the first question people ask me is, oh, I love Alf. And I feel like getting a pin that just says, you know, I only wrote one Alf, you know, but hey, you take it where you can get it. And that was a great show. Now, what the hell? I'm actually friendly with a guy, a guy named Tom Patchett, who actually created Alf. 
and runs uh, art galleries all over LA. And he just laughs, like says, you get all the credit, I got all the money, you know? So <laughs> worked out perfectly. Yeah, it worked out great for him. So there were so many unique characters yeah. that you were on tour with. Uh, we obviously can't go over all of them, but I did want to ask you about my favorite walking contradiction, who really does did seem like a, a good dude when you uh, when you think about it. An older gentleman who uh, who obviously has the older ways that he is is basing his his opinions and his interactions with people on. But would you mind telling the people that are listening right now a little bit about uh, your friend Shlomo? My friend Shlomo, he was actually uh, a displaced person in 1930. He was actually in a camp in Poland as like, uh, as like a 10-year-old. Uh, and he made it out, came to America, built up a little, you know, built up a business, did all right. But he was extremely conservative. I don't know what your politics are. I will make no assumptions. But he was very, very, very pro-Trump. And I kept trying to say, you know, most of Trump's fans, uh, I love you, Shlomo, but most of his fans, many of them are anti-Semitic, so what are you doing? And he's like, no, 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 Trump was predicted in the Bible, King Cyrus. He goes, I know that Trump's a rascal, but, uh, you know, he's great for the Jews. So, <laughs> so uh, we just agreed to disagree. And, you know, whatever my early judgment of these people that I... I toured with, including Shlomo. I grew to love them all. It turns out there's this whole, I love subcultures and like worlds that people don't know about. There's this whole other world of people who tour by bus, like nonstop. And if you're a non-rich person, like a middle-class person, uh, and you just want to go see the world, they just take these nonstop tours by bus. It's like, well, it's going to be the, uh, death camps this week and we're going to be in Ireland next week. And after that, we're going to be in the Finger Lakes, you know, and um, it's just regular folk and which Shlomo was one, but I, I'll, I'll tell you one story about Shlomo and forgive me if I'm all over the place. You know, the first book was about narcotics and linear thinking has yet to be returned. Um, <laughs> Shlomo told me this beautiful love story. You know, his wife, had kind of brutal dementia, apparently. So what, and she loved to shop on the shopping network. So what Shlomo would do would be, he would pretend to order her a necklace that she really loved. And then every time it arrived, he got to unwrap it and give it to her. And she was thrilled, you know, it was like it was the first time. And I thought if there is a more profound, beautiful and heartbreaking definition of love, I don't know what it is. So I was, I was very moved by that. Yeah, beautiful story. Thank you for resharing that for these airwaves right now. So y'all eventually make it to Auschwitz. Surprised to learn that you had to pay at one of the toilets at Auschwitz, although the, uh, the loo near the gas chamber was free, I guess. But uh, how did a hipster kind of uh, ruin your ability to reflect uh, at some of the more somber moments of Auschwitz? Well, in, in reference to your first question, I think the only area of the economy that's really booming in Poland is the toilet sector. I mean, there were toilet two and three toilet attendants in every toilet. I don't know if they were freelance. I'm not sure how it worked. I, I just kept thinking with the, uh, the guy in Auschwitz, you know, if it weren't for the Holocaust, this guy wouldn't have had a job, you know, because he was the death camp, you know, toilet. Uh, it was like a bridge troll you know except i wasn't sure if you paid to go in or you paid to go out so i paid twice so I'm, you know i'm kind of an idiot um and as far as the hipster yeah i was in uh where was i, I think i was in um uh one of the chambers you know and i was looking at the scratching on the wall i'm like oh my god this is so powerful i can feel it and then some like whiny hipster saying we well, you know bickering with his wife you know uh, who were both like just, you know, the coolest little snug pants and the coolest clothes. And uh, he's like, this is fake. It's all fake. It was rebuilt by the, by the Russians. You know, it's uh, not the original, you know, I mean, they might as well have been arguing over like a French restaurant in like, you know, Brooklyn. So um, I, I found myself getting increasingly irritated and, thought to myself, you know, I'm going to end up killing this guy. And I don't know if this will be the first murder at a death camp since they shut down. You know, I could just shove him into an oven and that's it. Who's going to know? But I did. 
but he, he certainly messed up that experience for me, for sure. It sounded like his girlfriend or wife might have been okay with that by the end of, of that Auschwitz tour. It could have been accused me. You know, I could have murdered him and we could have gone off together, but it didn't work out that <laughs> way. Yeah. By the same token, uh, your own cynicism started to creep in uh, during this leg of the trip when you uh, had to stare at the snack bar and all the folks who were uh, on tour with you uh, just jamming their faces with pizza, hot dogs, and whatever else was being served at the snack yeah. bar for the Auschwitz uh, concentration camp concession stand. They, they, they all had their... Uh, food concessions some you know Buchenwald had a beautiful cafeteria but uh, you know you want to go have this profound experience I mean think about it you're going to the scene of the greatest crime of the 20th century um, whatever your religious affiliations I mean this you know it's like Jehovah's Witnesses homosexuals communists you name it they were persecuted and I'm ready to have this deep emotional experience and I get there and I'm geared up and I've read all the literature and the first thing I see are these tourists dressed for like family day at like, you know, uh, Orlando Disneyland, you know, with the I'm with stupid t-shirts, you know, and, uh, and they're, they're shoving their faces with pizza and, you know, slamming the Fanta. And I just thought, well, you wanted to see humanity at its worst and this could be humanity at its worst, you know, just not the version you were expecting. So uh, I found myself drawn to go in there and, you know, they had calzones, they had every pork product you can imagine, which I thought maybe a little disrespectful, you know, uh, the whole pork thing. But then on the other hand, I thought, well, they've got Mexican food and Italian food and uh, Polish food. Maybe that's the greatest revenge on the Nazis there is. You know, it's like you thought you were gonna have a thousand year Reich. You had 12 years and a shitty snack bar. So <laughs> jokes on you, Himmler. You know. What was the fusion item that you saw there that you were just aghast by? Was it a uh, like a, a Mexican stromboli or something? Yeah, it was some crazy thing. It was like a uh, it was a half pizza, it was a calzone, which I believe was an Italian dish, but yeah. it was stuffed with uh, Mexican cheese and it was, it was like half burrito half calzone, but, you know, waved over a pizza. So I'm not sure what it was, but it was, uh, it was something Bourdain had yet to discover before he passed on, because I think he would have appreciated the sheer horror of the uh, food choices. No doubt about that. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to ask you about this, but you, uh, you share some interesting stuff about your, uh, your friend, Tony, who, uh, that I think people should definitely check out this book for plenty of reasons, but especially for that. So speaking of food, the day after Auschwitz, the tour grabbed dinner at a place called Am Pulverton, a restaurant in Dresden. How is this a unique dining experience? You're, you're really, a, you're, you're a good reader. You're a thorough reader. Thank it you. was a strange dining experience because they had something for the kids. They had a fake executioner who would come out and pretend that he was going to chop your child's head off if you didn't finish dinner. <laughs> and I thought, well, wow, what, what could be a better Teutonic fun fest for the children than having a guy come out like with a, you know, a fake giant, uh, you know, axe for the kids and uh, he didn't have weapons all over the walls. And it was just, it was, uh, it, it, it blows your mind, but you know, obviously America's nuts compared, you know, nuts looking compared to the rest of the world. So far be it for me to judge. It's not like I think I'm any better than the people who enjoy a good fake execution at a, at a restaurant. Um, you know, maybe that's a good way to keep the kids in line. They're taking the medieval times thing to the next level in Germany, apparently. <laughs> they really are. Yeah, they absolutely are taking the medieval thing. Yeah, if, if only they had like hangmen at the medieval times, it would like take your <laughs> child and pretend to hang them, you know, right to the last, you know, little fake detail. But it was very effective. And, like you know, half of them. Yeah, I feel like 80% of the kids that I see out eating at restaurants would uh, end up meeting that fate when it was all said and done. At least here it can be a little tough, but you know, having had a kid myself or two, uh, two daughters, you know, I mean, there, there's always that moment they scream in a restaurant, and what you know, someday that's going to be you. It's going to be your child having the tantrum in the uh, grocery store, and you know, then you can't judge because you feel all those eyes on you. You know, 
I hope that's never happened to you, but it, it will. Oh, it certainly happened. We've actually had to apologize to the service staff before at a restaurant and say, you know what? Our son or daughter is not fit for uh, public consumption right now. So do you mind uh, packing our stuff to go? So we're not yeah. having to subject everybody else to this. And I think one of the keys, Jerry, and you know this because you you have two daughters, you have one older one, one who's on the younger side of things, is it's not necessarily just about the the tantrum or the crying or the moment that that kid is having. It's what the parents are trying to do to help out there. Like we've all been on an airplane where you have a couple of parents who are just letting their kid run roughshod on the airplane. And you don't, you can't, well, maybe you can't get a little bit mad at the kid, but you get mad at the parents because they're clearly making no effort to try and control the situation. Yeah. Yeah, It's a tough call. I guess it's a generational thing. I mean, when I was growing up and I don't recommend this, but when I was a little kid, I mean, parents would come running out of the house, smack their kids and drag them inside by the ear. Don't recommend it. Not advocating it. Don't do it myself. But things have definitely swung the other way among a certain segment of society where it's like, well, you know, let's just let's talk with little Timmy and see what he's thinking about and see why he's why he threw that tray at the person in the seat in front of him. And let's try and figure this out, break it down. You know, we can negotiate. Talk about the feelings. So, God, I sound like a reactionary douchebag. So I don't know what is the right way to go. I don't presume to tell anybody how to do anything. But It is, uh, it is somewhere in the middle. Like maybe it's not slapping the kid, but there are consequences to acting like a little shithead, you know? Well, there is that. I I guess I, my, I don't have a very deep theory of child raising, but to the extent I have one, it's that you just try to screw your kids up the opposite way of how your parents screwed up you. And then maybe it meets in the middle, you know? That's a good way to put it there. So the tour ends up stopping at one point between concentration camps in Munich during Oktoberfest. Now, I'm someone who does drink from time to time. I like the occasional beer, but I hate large crowds. And I hate large gatherings of drunk people, too. I shudder at the thought of ending up in some place like this. You obviously have that added element of being decades sober. Was that hell on earth for you? I don't like people getting drunk. I mean, I might get a little little twitchy if somebody starts shooting up on their neck in front of me. But I don't begrudge anybody getting high. I think what messed with me was just all these grown men in later hosts, you know, which are these (laughs) tiny little leather short pants with the suspenders basically like a glorified onesie on grown ass men, grown ass German men who were holding these enormous like terrine sized steins and just knocking them back, barfing like they're saying hello, you know, all over the street. And I just thought, well, this is how it ends. I got lost. I was in a blind alley. I saw a bunch of like later hosen clad beer drunks down at the end. And I thought, well, maybe it's not a bad thing. You know, in Hell's Angels, the book that Hunter Thompson wrote, he gets the shit kicked out of him by a bunch of Hell's Angels. You know? And what a great, you know, what a great scene in the book. It made his career. I'm thinking maybe if this is how I die, not great, but it'll be great for the book, you know, posthumously, you know. Instead, you're having to help one of your bus mates uh, try and find his partner who he thinks has just vanished forever. Yeah, there was a very sweet couple. Uh, uh, what were their, I got, I, you know, blanking on their names. There Douglas, were two guys. Douglas and Tito or Tito. Yeah. yeah. God, you're so much better than me. Yeah. But somebody has a memory. Anyway, Douglas had lost his partner and uh, because he didn't carry his cell phone. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm an obliging type. What I really wanted to go is walk around and take pictures of all the grotesque butcher shops with like the, you know, the upside down pigs hanging by their, feet but instead being a nice guy i'll whine about it later of course you know i helped this guy find his partner who it turned out was just sitting on the bus you know and not a problem and it was a very sweet ending he just said thank you you know and uh but yeah i I, we it was rough right because the bus waits for no man and at four o'clock it was uh it was ready to roll so we just made it the nick of time yeah, you also got to witness some uh, impressive projectile vomiting, too. So uh, you'll eventually make it to Buchenwald, uh, the camp that includes a history lesson on somebody who really doesn't get enough credit in terms of evil Nazi figures during World War II. Who is the bitch of Buchenwald and why is she such a bitch, Jerry? 
Well, uh, the bitch of Buchenwald, oddly, was the woman that Ilsa She-Wolf of the SS was based on. The real Ilsa Koch was a real-life figure, wife of the commandant, commandant Koch, uh, K-O-S, sort of like the Koch brothers, just a different pronunciation, uh, but probably not very different politics. But <laughs> she, she had a fetish for, she would like to ride around pretty much naked on horseback, and if any of the prisoners looked at her sideways, they were dead. But on the other hand, if she looked at them and wanted to bring them into the bed with her, they came, spent a rollicking good time, and then she'd have them killed. But her favorite thing was tattoos. And this is what earned her her really, uh, her, you know, uh, her well-earned nickname, the Bitch of Buchenwald, was uh, if anybody had a tattoo, she would have them skinned because she liked to make wallets or little keychains that she liked to pass out at Christmas, you know, as one does, um, made from the skin of, of prisoners, which, you know, everybody knows, you know, the old cliche about the lampshades, but they actually had these at Nuremberg. They had samples of these and her trademark giga, her trademark gadget for around the house, she made light switches out of thumb, thumb joints. And uh, so she was a she was a she was a crafts person. She had she liked to do crafts. So that's how she earned her nickname. She was this nightmare. And uh, Commandant Coke married her. Understandably, an unhappy guy himself. Uh, you know, it's that kind of marriage that you just you just have to wonder. You know, it's not Robin Laura Petrie. But um, no. Yeah, so that's that's who the bitch of Buchenwald was. That's the the real original bitch, not the one in the movie that was actually shot. And this is like boomer alert. If anybody remembers Hogan's Heroes, probably way before your time, but it was a TV show that took place in a Nazi prison camp, and um, with Bob Crane, who you may know from the movie made about him. Uh, you're not, I don't know if any of this is connecting or if you were born just way too late to register for any of this. So I, I, I've never watched the show, but I'm familiar with the show. And as a matter of fact, I'm watching a show on Paramount Plus right now mm-hmm. on the making of The Godfather and Al Lundy. There you go. Yeah. The producer who made that was one of the two guys responsible for Hogan's Heroes as well. So there's, Small there's a strange connection what a, what a there. Crazy show that show is, the offer. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, the, 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 the takeaway fact from there is that this hellacious, lightweight Nazi porn film was actually shot on the set of Hogan's Heroes on weekends when it was shut down. Then they finally bought the whole, the whole soundstage because the last scene of Ilsa She-Wolf of the SS, I don't know why I keep saying that title, they burned down the entire camp and they figured... The studio figured, well, you know, it saves us having to, to break it down and destroy it. We'll let them burn it down and we'll make a profit because that's how Hollywood works. Yeah, that's definitely getting a two for one for the money you paid for the original set, I guess. Yeah, win-win. So I have to admit to you that I read much of this book during a four and a half hour stay on a tarmac uh, coming back wow. from Virginia this last weekend. Uh, We ended up landing in Austin, but because lightning struck and bad weather rolled through over the course of about five or six hours, Mm -hmm. we were sitting on the airplane this entire time. And I was like, the time flew for me because your book was so entertaining. But I do have to tell you, one of my favorite lines from this book, your happy campers line, which I don't want to ruin for people. People need to read the book for the happy campers line. I was laughing like a fucking maniac in my seat. And I had people looking at me sideways, like, what is wrong with this guy? Has he just lost it? So thank you for well, that. Thank, uh, that amusement. Well, th- thank you. I mean, I mean, you've know, you've read the book and that's, uh, I can't think of a greater, a greater thing that any author wants to hear. This book was kind of a tightrope because you know, you're writing about the Holocaust on some level, which is there is no more deadly serious topic. But on the other hand, the tourism that goes with it, the people that are drawn to it, the strange little industry that goes on around it, kind of hysterical. And it's just a matter of striking the right balance. But your reaction is the one that I couldn't hope for more. So you made my day. 
Thank well, I you. feel I feel like you and I are cut from the same cloth, Jerry. Like you understand the seriousness of a given situation, but as somebody like you are, who is obviously very observational, and you have a very active mind, and your mind does go dark places at times, and uh, some of the the funniest moments come from those dark places. You, you can't help but to make light out of certain things. And that's not to say that you uh, weren't able to treat the serious moments with the proper respect, but you also, I think, have a grounded enough perspective because you've seen so much serious shit in your life that uh, that you are able to go uh, places that a lot of others are not just because they either don't have that sense of humor or they, they just don't have that active imagination, whatever it is. I think it's a survival skill on some level. I, I don't know if it was Richard Pryor, somebody said, you know, the oppressed people have the best senses of humor, you know, hmm. and, uh, and and people who I really don't trust anybody who's been through hell. I'm kind of a pain snob. You can see it in the eyes of somebody what kind of life, you know, they might have had. It doesn't have to be something super dramatic, but you can tell if people are going to, I mean, you like this book, so clearly there's something wrong with you. You know, I'm just saying that as a friend, as a concerned friend. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's a way of coping. You know, yeah. when you're in these extreme situations, I mean, what are you going to do? But if you can find some way to find humor buried in there, I don't think it's the worst thing in the world. Combined with the really interesting truth that I read about. Actually, I, I was talking to a, uh, a Holocaust survivor. Before I even started this book, I was like, how am I going to do it? Because I, I had about three or four years before I even figured out how to write the book. But they said to me, this woman said to me, well, you know, Hitler, I'm not going to do her accent, I can't, you know, Hitler was not afraid of being assassinated. He was afraid of being laughed at, hmm. you know, so on some level, making mockery, making carnival of his insane Nazi project is the best revenge. Is that right? He hated being laughed at and he probably made people pay. Terrified. Or, uh, snickered in his presence. He was terrified of being laughed at. Yeah. He didn't fear assassination. He thought he could withstand it, but he didn't think he could be killed, but he knew he could be laughed at. And so, you know, that's why he hated Chaplin. Um, though, weirdly enough, the first Hollywood movie to mock Hitler were the Three Stooges. They invented the uh, fake kingdom of Moronica. <laughs> you know, typical high-level Stooge humor. And... Uh, <laughs> Subsequently, whether or not Chaplin got the idea from that, we'll never know. But it's just, uh, you know, I, I like the sort of history between the histories, you know, the sort of the extra weird little factoids that inform the larger story. Yeah. And one of those that is specific to Charlie Chaplin was that, you know, he and the Stooges and some other entertainers were mocking what Hitler was in the moment with nobody really truly understanding some of the evils being carried out in World War II. And I, I think you said specifically, Charlie Chaplin said after the fact, had he realized what was going on, he probably would have done something completely different with that or maybe done sure. nothing altogether. Yeah, that's true. And, and the Stooges, oddly enough, uh, apparently Mo, <laughs> it, it's even talking thing, the word Mo, but it, it is a serious story that the executives were furious with them because they thought they would lose the German market. You know, because at that point they were still doing business. We hadn't declared war and, you know, that's business. So they got in a lot of hot water because of that. Good Lord. So you describe your visit to Nuremberg and I think specifically the courtroom where the infamous trials occurred as climactic and anticlimactic at the same time. Why? There, there is a. How can I describe this? This is a phenomenon that kicks in. And this happened with, with, with the camps as well. You, when you've seen a picture of something or you've seen documentary footage, it's almost like the real thing in a way is anticlimactic because you have seen it so many times. Now, in the camps, something else takes over or took over for me. I had the sense, and I've never had anything like this before since that, you're literally walking on the bones of the dead and you're breathing the air that is composed of, you know, is it the microbes, the dust, whatever, you, you know, the detritus of, of, of all those who were killed. It's a very profound feeling. Um, and it specifically 
at Nuremberg, I had seen all those pictures. And there's Nuremberg, the courtroom in that beautiful old building. And then about 50 paces to the right, they have a photographic display where you're looking at pictures of the courtroom and looking at pictures of like Gehring and his like movie star glasses, like he's stepped off the uh, you know runway at Cannes. And it's, it's, it's unsettling to say the least, but somehow you find a way to embrace the heaviness of the moment you know, in a way that transcends the fact that it's all too tragically familiar because you've been staring at it all your life. Perhaps a, a weird question to ask, but it happens with so many other areas of your life where you really saturate your attention with topics both serious and non. But did you experience a sort of concentration camp fatigue at any point just because you are subjecting yourself to this uh, every couple of days? And it obviously is very intense and, and emotional. It's, it's amazing how adaptable the human being is. I mean, by about the maybe 11th, 9th day or so, I felt like going to concentration camps was my job. You know, we'd meet at like, oh, 700 hours, you know, then we would have food and then we would, you know, put luggage on bus. And uh, it just became like what I did every day. But somehow when you get there, there is still that, moment when you realize what has happened and something bigger than you takes over. Hmm. So I'm a bit embarrassed to admit that I knew nothing about uh, DeKal before reading about it in your book. So that family guy reference went straight over my head until you explained it. Uh, what was the sickest and uh, the sickest horror that you encountered at this camp? At Dachau? Uh, yeah. At Dachau, I think maybe the oddest thing was the, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to say the sickest thing. I mean, the whole concept, needless to say, you take a step back is, is, is bizarre and sick and sickening. But just one minor note, which I wouldn't qualify as sickening, but, but they have a little bookstore. And in that bookstore, the authors they picked were like Philip Roth, and I think Sigmund Freud. And it's like, why these guys, you know? Where's Sarah Silverman, you know? She's written hysterical books. You know, well, I, I think if you really wanted to do it, you would have Gilbert Gottfried. You, you know, you would have Larry Dave. You know, all these guys have banged out books at some point in their career, or had people bang them out for them. And it, it's just hilarious to me that they picked like, oh, Philip Roth. He's funny, so these Jews could be funny too. You know, why, doggone it, who knew, you know? I don't know who made that decision, and I'm sure they had their reasons, but the whole concept of the gift shop and, you know, I went to Dachau and all I got was this stupid T-shirt, you know, I mean, you just, you know, you don't know whether to laugh or cry, but all respect, people are, you know, they need to find money to support the enterprise that pays for the camps and the upkeep. So whatever it takes, I was happy to shell out for, for a bunch of magnets, you know. So all the Dachau barracks have been demolished with the outlines remaining to give visitors a sense of where they were. And everybody stayed away from uh, walking across those lines and uh, on top of the ground where the barracks used to be. But one barrack had been reconstructed. Why was this building disturbing, especially to your friend Shlomo? Yeah, Shlomo um, kind of educated me to this. He said, you know, take a look at this. And we walked in and it, it, it looked like the dressing room at Mar-a-Lago, you know, on the back nine. It was just this beautiful mahogany and these lockers with little uh, plaques for your numbers. And then you realize this one is completely fake. This is propaganda designed to make people think that somehow the people who built these camps just weren't that bad. You know, they had a heart. And it was so fraudulent that my old friend Shlomo, I thought he was going to have a heart attack. I mean, I just watched his face redden, you know, as his blood pressure started skyrocketing. So I just kind of ushered him out of there because he was so furious at the fraudulent nature of what he perceived this, this, this phony barracks to be. That uh, he, It was offensive. And certainly he had every right to be offended. See, that's where that hipster from Auschwitz uh, could have actually come in handy. 
calling something so like that out. Yeah, good point. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's uh, cumulatively speaking, I, I, I recommend this kind of trip, not by bus. The bus aspect was kind of horrifying. I mean, I, I've never recovered from high school bus abuse, so I brought my own baggage to that party. <laughs> but I, I do recommend that people, if they can, at some point in their life, go and see this. But, you know, let's face it, we're surrounded by genocide. I mean, America, you know, look at the Great Plains. You know, America kind of founded on genocide, you know. Uh, and they've been killing people over in the, you know, in the Jew-killing countries long before they got it together to have World War II. You know, um, they were throwing people in pits in 900. And my grandfather, you know, barely made it out of a pogrom. And my father's father was killed in the pogrom, Lithuania. So it's been going on forever. And, uh, you know, it's going on again now. You know, whether in this country, whether it's Proud Boys, whether it's Oath Keepers, I mean, it's in the mail. So to some extent, and I know this isn't a question you asked, but to some extent, it, it was almost as much like visiting the future as it was visiting the past. No, I love that answer. As a matter of fact, you couldn't guess this from looking at me because I am uh, pale as a sheet, but I'm more Armenian than anything else. As I, as I tell people, we are the uh, the poor man's Jews. Uh, we, we have a, a certain stereotype about us, and we have also dealt with genocide throughout our history. And it is, uh, it's a sad reality in this world, even though this is uh, the most egregious example of genocide, that it is something that is still commonplace to this day, even if uh, we don't necessarily uh, pay close attention to what's happening, if it's not in within our little bubble and our community and our state and our country, whatever else. Well, it's it's funny you mention. I mean, the Turks still haven't owned up to that, have they not? I mean, the Turks are still my, one of my best friends is Eric Bogosian, yeah, who is an Armenian performer and writer. He wrote a great book called Operation Nemesis. I don't know if you're familiar with it. If not, big, I, big fan. I haven't read that book. I'm a big fan of Eric, so I loved him in uh, talk radio. Well, yeah, that's that's one side of him. The other side of him is Armenian historian. And this is the story of this group of guys who decided one by one to wreak revenge on all the top-level Turks responsible for the genocide and just started picking them off wherever they were in Europe or Turkey. And it's a true story and an amazing one. And I won't give you the spoiler. I mean, it's nonfiction, but uh, uh, true. I would not have guessed you're Armenian, but I certainly understand that. I mean, there's no stereotype, you know, uh, we're all mongrels. Well, so, I have two. I have two. I have two tells, Jerry. One is the uh, the bird beak, so I've got the Armenian hook in my nose, and the other is that I have a propensity to go full gypsy at times. I have no problem uprooting and leaving a movie someplace completely different if the situation calls for it. Really, are you a drop of the hat midnight? I'm out of here, kind of guy. Not as much. Not as much to. anymore. Not as much anymore. We have our place in the Austin Burbs now, and with a seven and five year old, it's uh, not as easy to do. But there was a point in my life where I could have gotten very comfortable with that existence. Yeah. Well, that you know, maybe that's epigenetic too. Maybe that's something that you know, generations of having to pick up and leave have bred into your DNA. You know, uh, not the worst skill to have. You know. That's right. So uh, one aspect of you writing this book that it still blows me away is that you had written a lot of notes on pieces of paper napkins collected throughout this trip and you had taken them back home and they had accidentally gotten thrown away by a maid after that so you were having to reconstruct everything that you wrote in this book based on your memory is there something that's popped into your head since this book has gone to publication that you were a little bit disappointed not to have recalled it uh, enough to be able to have included it in the book? Oh, yeah. First, I will say in my defense, it was not actually a maid. I'm not a maid kind of guy. This was the grandmother of a friend of mine, a neighbor, and she needed a little extra of this, extra of that. And the place was kind of a mess. And she saw these scribbled on, yeah, receipts, napkins, dry cleaning, you know, whatever. And thought, oh, what a mess, and just threw them out. So that's that's how that happened. Um, uh, yeah, it's funny. I, I've woken up screaming a couple of times at three in the morning thinking, I can't believe I forgot to include that detail. Um, there was the evening in, um, in Krakow, I think it was the night before Auschwitz, 
where mysterious screaming in the hall, and it was all our our tour group was, you know, had this top floor and this, I don't know, some Hilton, I don't know what the hell they was. And somehow somebody started screaming in the hall in the middle of the night. And I came out and other doors open and there was like no one there. It's like it never happened. I don't know what I could have made of that incident, but I'm sure I could have done something with it and given it some sort of level of uh, artificial import as sort of a uh, hint of things to come, but I completely forgot. So there's that. Um, there was uh, there was some projectile vomiting on the uh, on the. Uh, there was a, an Australian individual who practiced the. Uh, I'm not going to say national sport, but you know, was no stranger to like projectile vomiting on the bus. But I decided, I willfully forgot about that and remembered it later. So you know, uh, there's that. These are not high tone incidents, my friend. These are, you know, low level uh, anecdotes. What were you about to say? Was that the same traveler that was helping you out with Douglas at Oktoberfest? Uh, it absolutely was. And yeah. she's the one who was very kind at, at Buchenwald. I had, uh, I was walking by <laughs> this really lush, it wasn't even a cafeteria. It was like a beautiful dining room. And I'm just sort of, you know, like you, I'm just like judging them. I'm giving them stink eye and I'm so busy. Look, I walk right into a plate glass window, crack my skull and start bleeding copiously and then have to like skulk my way past them again, you know, to get a damp paper towel in the Buchenwald cafeteria men's room. And then as I came out, uh, our, my, my friend from Australia, who I didn't know very well, was nice enough to, uh, you know, she had the whole like first aid kit in her purse and, you know, tamped me down, got some disinfectant because God knows what kind of germs you can get from a plate glass window of Bougainville. You know, Ooh. who the hell? Yeah, I don't even want to think. Um, so that happened. Yeah. So uh, a lot of these people had to win you over, which I completely understand. I'm not somebody who's going to be overly trusting of uh, folks in the beginning, but eventually you get to know somebody, you get to understand where they're coming from and you gain a little bit more respect in that regard. Do you feel like you won most everybody else over? Uh, because you only admit in this book that you're not the easiest person to get along with at times. Well, it's, that's a very, it's a astute observation and a good question. Um, you know, I think all judgment ultimately is self-judgment. So if I walk in there feeling a little snooty about everybody, it's obviously because I, you know, I have some sense of uh, trepidation about myself. I ended up liking them. I, I certainly can't can't venture a guess as to what the hell they think about me. I guess if they ever read this book, you know, depending on the lawsuits that roll in, you know, we'll see. You know, all <laughs> names have changed, so we'll, you know, hopefully that will cover me. Well, here's Jerry Stahl, best-selling author and screenwriter. His newest book is another great one. It's 999. There's a great story on the title, by the way. It has to do with Permanent Midnight. One man's tale of depression, psychic torment, and a bus tour of the Holocaust. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Jerry, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this wonderful book. Thank you for having me. It means a lot. Take care of yourself, man. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to Joshua Bates for the video editing. If you have any video editing needs, hit him up on Instagram at Forager Digital. And thanks as always to you for checking us out. You can watch, listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day. <laughs>